team uh, led us pretty awesome this morning, I thought. Uh, they're pretty phenomenal, and uh, under Jeremy's leadership was, was really kind of a special treat. Uh, Got to have a Bible, otherwise you're going to get lost. Raise your hand if you didn't bring a Bible today, and the guys will bring one right to where you're sitting. Uh, John's got them, and Dave's got them, and Dave's got them. And <laughs> anybody else named Dave, hand out Bibles, that'd be great. Um, if you would take out the handout sheet in your bulletin as well, we can get started this morning. As you heard, we are in part seven of our series, and it's called Keeping Your Head in the Chaos. And instead of beginning with a quote today, I want to begin with a story. There are two types of drama. There's external drama and internal drama in our lives. The external drama is sometimes things that you cannot control, but you may find that you instigated. For example, there are some of us that no matter where we go in life, drama seems to follow us. All right. And you know those folks as well, that every time they call you, you almost want to kind of skip their call because you know it's going to be some big, huge thing just blew up. And, oh, it's so shocking that, you know, surprisingly, their life just fell apart. And you're like, you know what? Your life fell apart last week. And, you know, and they just kind of run around. That's kind of that sometimes that external chaos. The internal chaos is that which happens within your soul. And here's I have a story for you about sometime when when uh, mine had a tendency to go off a little bit off kilter. And here's what happened. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was towards the end of a period of time when I was supposed to have my seminary class done. Now, I'm in seminary. I became a pastor and then I went to seminary. And I've been in seminary for the last eight years. I am only two-thirds of the way through, and at some point they're going to decide to kick me out. I don't know when that is, but they haven't warned me yet, so I'm still going at that rate. So just be assured that whatever schooling you're going through now, whether you're 12 years old or 28, you're going to get there faster than I will. I probably will never seem to get done with this stuff. So I'm going through these classes, and I decide that I'm going to take two of them. And they're distance learning courses, which means you watch all this stuff on a CD. Okay? It's 35 hours of video on CD. You're basically watching some guy that recorded it back in 1998, standard white shirt, tie, talking to you for 35 hours. And that's if you're not taking notes. Now, I take notes, so I always have to go pause start, pause, after everything, right? So it takes forever to get through these things. So I've gone through about 10% and the end of the class is coming up. So I got an extension, right? I got the extension down and that's offered to all the students. And so I thought, well, great, I got an extra six weeks. That got me to about 12% of stuff done and I still had an awful lot to go. So I had heard that there was a possibility of a second extension. Now, that's kind of my, that's my name. That's my middle name is Second Extension Lance. I always needed a second extension. So I, I wrote out an email and asked for a second extension. Now, I didn't think I was going to get it. This only happens in rare occasions. And so I thought, well, if I don't get it, I lose the class. Now, this seminary stuff hangs over my head. Now, I want to go through it. I absolutely love it. It is the best school Western Seminary is the best school I've ever been to. It's fantastic. I love everything about it. I love being in class. I'm just terrible at homework. All right? Now, a distance learning class is all at home. And so, as I'm going through this, I'm kind of wrestling with the idea that i got to get it done. All these classes are expensive. As a matter of fact, the two classes that I have currently going, it's about 1500 bucks hanging over my head. 
You blow this, you lose all the money, and you got to pay for it all over again. So I got this hanging over, I got all my normal work to go on, and I'm trying, you know, to write one of these sermons is at least 10 hours a week, usually a lot more than that. And then there's counseling and a bunch of stuff, and I'm thinking, where do I have time to do this? So I've got all this stuff hanging over my head, and I'm carrying it around like a weight every day on my to-do list, right down. Finish homework, finish seminary, and I'm writing it down, hoping I can cross it off someday, and I can never seem to cross it off. So sure enough, whenever I get an email on my system, a little bubble pops up in the corner of my screen, and it gives you the first line of what the email will be. And it says, rejected. Okay? So I was thinking, all right, I knew that was coming. I knew I knew I was going to probably get rejected. So I clicked on to the email, and I was a little tense this morning, and I clicked on the email, and it said, uh, your request has been rejected. And then it had a couple other things to say. And then he decided to add in a line there. Now, I, you'll find out later that he had great intentions in mind. However, I was in no mood. I was in no mood to hear what his commentary was as to why I was not finishing school. But he put in this line and it said, you've used up all your grace. Now it's time to think about accountability. Well, I didn't respond with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> My first instant reaction was, how can I reach through the screen and rip your head off, whoever you are? That was my reaction. Uh, not exactly the godly response you were hoping for. So I, I decided, well, I can't, I can't physically harm the man. He's too far away. So what I have to do is I have to write a snitty email back to the man because that's what Jesus would do. So I, uh, <laughs> I type out and, I, and I'm writing and it said something to the degree of, uh, no problem. I understand the, re the request was denied. There's not a problem with that. I understand that. Thank you very much for the first extension. And that's when I got snitty. And I said, and by the way, I have enough hanging over my head. Feel free to keep your advice about accountability. I have enough problems as it is or something to that degree. And, uh, and I said, uh, and right when I hit, uh, I went to go pray. I said, enter. And I went to go pray. I ran off to pray with the staff. Now, as all good Christians would do, as I walked in with the staff, I, I kind of walked in, I kind of had a smile on my face. Now, I felt better because I just, I just hurt somebody else, and in some ways, that makes me feel better. And so I, I did feel better as I walked in to pray, and as I sat there and we started sharing prayer requests, and we went around, and every morning, on Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock, we have a prayer time, and, and then I started out mine, and I said, I'm really tense this morning, and I just ate somebody alive on email, and it wasn't very fair, and right when I get done praying here, i got to go write an apology, so uh, I just need some prayer for some patience. So we started praying, and by the time I got out of that prayer, I was in a whole different mindset. I was in a whole different frame of mind, immediately got on my computer and typed out an apology. This man in no way deserved for me to eat him alive because I was tense. But the bottom line was, in my mind, I did not slow down or take the time to consider God whatsoever. Someone had harmed me, someone had insulted me, and someone had no idea of my situation, and yet they decided to speak into it, and they said something irritating. So I thought I had every right in the world to beat them up. And even if I didn't have the right, I wanted to do it. It made me feel better.
And when I wrote that apology, and I just didn't make any excuses, I said, I was wrong. It was absolutely my fault. I'm sorry. You don't deserve that. He wrote back and he said, he said, you know, with all the students, I don't know how to properly motivate them. I'm sorry. I was out of line. I'm sorry I said what I said. And he said, I was just trying to help. Now, here's my point in saying all of this. I think that we're all very similar in the fact that when something goes down or blows up in our lives, our first instinct is to react to it. We don't slow down and ask God's opinion because we don't want to hear it. What he's going to say to us is likely, hold on a second. And that's the last thing we want to do. We want to instantaneously feel better. And the best way to feel better is to go vomit all your junk on somebody else. The problem is, is when you dump all that on someone else, where are they going to go with it? They're going to go take it and unload on somebody else. And they're going to go take it and unload on somebody else. And it's going to echo out. And I would suggest to you that even though you may not act like that towards people outside, you might be acting like that towards your family. You might be acting like that towards your children or towards your spouse. And when you get tense and you get all fired up, you lash out on those around you. Isn't it interesting that early in the Bible, God had to talk to the Israelites and he gave them a phrase. I'm taking it slightly out of context, but you'll understand. Be still and know that I am God. Isn't it interesting that he had to tell them to mellow out, to slow down, and to let him be God? Now, their world was likely not even as busy and crazy and maddening as ours. It was just as hard. As a matter of fact, in many ways, it was far harder. But the one thing that is killing us in this church and in our lives today is busyness. We have so many things jammed into our heads that we run at the speed of light and we don't have time to slow down and hear someone else's heart. So we just yell at people and we get it off our chest. And the whole time we're hurting people. Today's story that we are about to study is about Jephthah, a deliverer. Jephthah is a man who will be forever infamous for making a bad decision under chaos. He reacted poorly. He didn't check with God. He didn't check with anybody. He just did what he wanted to do. And you know what? We're going to have a million excuses why we do what we do. Well, you know what? My work is hard and this is going on and someone cut me off and blah, blah, blah. You're going to have a million reasons for why you have a bad attitude. And I ask you this, is God being honored in your outburst? Likely the answer to that is no. And so I share my embarrassing situation. And by the way, last night when my wife was here, she was cringing in the back going, don't tell that story. You sound like a total idiot. And I said, yeah, that's kind of the point. We're all like that. See, God gave me an amazing gift of quick wit. I feel it is then my duty to use that and expand that roster into many different elements of life. If you say something to me while you're talking, I have a computer generated response that I will spin around and think of the most sarcastic thing I could possibly say to you. And I'm ready at a moment's notice. It is only Jesus that stops that from flying out. 
But on everything like that, there's a pro and a con. Why did Jesus give me that type of speed of thinking? Because he probably wanted me to have the ability that when you walk in the church and instantaneously remember that I cried with you last week and I recall it, boom, and I'm back in and go, how you doing? You think that's why Jesus gave it to me or did he give it to me to tear people apart? You see, we all have gifts and talents and we have to use them properly because the whole time when you start using your gift improperly, God's going, that's not why I gave that to you. What are you doing? You're hurting people. Stop doing that. You're my man or my woman right now, right here. And they need you to be Jesus in this scenario. This gentleman that I emailed, who knows if he would have had a horrible day and now he has some pastor on the other side eating him alive. Is that what he needs? No. And all I want you to know is the fill in the blank in front of you. Because I received some great counsel from my father as a young man. And it was very similar to this. During the chaos... Cling to the rock. During the chaos, cling to the rock. What my father told me was actually this. Lance, do not make decisions in the moment. Do not make decisions under pressure. Do not make decisions when everything is whirling around you because you will largely make the wrong one. Let it calm down, then make your decision. Now, for example, let's say you're in a relationship that is unhealthy. And you're arguing, let's say it's with you're you're a gal and you have a girlfriend that you've had for a long time. And maybe this relationship is not healthy and you get in a fight with her in the middle of the fight. You do not walk away from that relationship. God may even tell you, listen, this is an unhealthy relationship. You need to get out. Don't run in the midst of the fire. Let it calm down, sort out that issue and then calmly determine if it's an unhealthy relationship and step out. Each and every time we make decisions in the heat of the moment, we're largely going to overstep our boundaries and start playing God. And that's when we get into trouble. Does all that sound pretty practical? All right, let's move forward. Let's turn in Judges chapter 10, verse 1, page 178 in the Bibles that were handed to you. I understand that for many of you, my use of maps and facts and figures is irritating, all right? I'm going to refer to it only a couple times, maybe today, maybe just once. I don't want you to lose sight of what I'm trying to say today. I don't want you to get lost in all the names and all the titles and the weird things and this and that. I just want you to remember this. The big picture in this story is we're going to start out by talking to two, about two insignificant kings, then our main guy, and wrap up with three other mediocre insignificant kings. There's really only one story that I want you to focus on. And it's all about a man that made decisions under pressure without consulting the Lord. That's really all I want you to focus on. So let's not get too lost in everything else. Let's begin. After the time of Abimelech, that was our last dismal king, a man of Issachar, Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo. Okay. <laughs> Very difficult life right there. Okay. There is no way you're not going to get teased in school with that. All right. You're pretty much like, I know your grandfather. Okay, anyway, it's not important. After the time of Abimelech, Tola rose to save Israel. Now, who did he save Israel from? There was no outside enemies that are alleged here. So who was it? It was from their last king, their own man. He was such a horrible leader. He completely devastated the nation. And this guy had to save them from themselves. 
He lived in Shamir, the hill country of Ephraim, and he led Israel 23 years. That's a long time. And then he died and was buried in Shamir. He was followed by Jair of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. That's still a long time. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havoth Jair. When Jair died, he was buried in Kamon. Who are those guys? Nobody cares. Has no interest to us. But the second guy, he was flashing out his wealth. He had 30 sons. It's likely he was a polygamist. Where did he learn that from? Remember we talked about Gideon's legacy? It's still echoing out. Gideon was a polygamist. So they're clearly going, hey, if the big dog did it, I can do it. It's still rating out bad behavior. And they're copying him. And then we learn the story of today. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, that's that vicious cycle through judges where everything goes well and people walk away from God. They served the false gods, the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of the nation Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. Stop for a moment. If you have come to this church recently, you may have carried in some notion that God is like a, a policeman waiting to bonk you on the head for everything you do wrong. And when you read something like this, you go, see, I knew it. God is just ready to blast me. When he gets mad with me, he just wants to hurt me. I hope that you remain with us because that is not our heart at all in the way that we see the Lord. Nor do I believe that that is biblically accurate. But if you've been here a while, you may have caught on to the other error, which is Jesus is our friend. He's a nice guy. He's the guy that will just let me sin whenever I want. And he's the guy I pray to when I need something. And you begin to slip into the greasy grace concept. For you, like me, I need you to read that again. That sometimes God is sick and tired of your sin. Sometimes God gets mad about the way I'm acting. Does that make sense? We need to remember that. This is a year of holiness and we serve a holy and righteous God. But notice his heart. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites who that year shattered and crushed them. This is, this is believed to be the year 1126 B.C. And the only time I'm going to refer to this map is right here. Here's all I need you to know. This is all the area around the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee over here in the Israel area where all the 12 tribes were. However, on the outskirts were a couple enemy nations, the Aram, Ammon, Moab and Edom. Do you see all those guys? These are the guys that are coming up in our story on the coastal side. The Mediterranean Sea side were the Philistines. This is the first time that God has given them judgment by a double barrel attack. He's having them be attacked from the west by the Philistines and crushed from the east by Ammon. So they're having it on both sides. But because the Philistines are going to be dealt with in the story of Samson, which is coming up, the Bible sets them aside and only talks about the Ammonites. And the last thing you need to know to keep the story straight is in the area of the Ammonites lived the Amorite people. Now, if that's not confusing, I don't know what it is. The Amorites hung out in the Ammonite territory. Keep them separate, two different groups of people. Let's move forward. 
He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, the Ammonites oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan, now they're in deeper territory, to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. And Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And as you know, we all cry out when things get too tough for us and our sin eats us alive. We have sinned against you, they said, forsaking our God and serving the false gods, the Baals. Let me pause for a moment. I want to talk about the absurdity of what's going on. They have come in and taken over seven nations that serve seven different gods, at least. When they came in and beat down that God, that showed that that other God was weak in their minds. Now, remember, it's not a God at all. It's just a demon running around trying to play big dog. All right. But they just beat seven nations. Then they worship the gods of the defeated nations. How stupid is that? Wouldn't you want to serve the big guy? Wouldn't you want to serve the one that keeps winning? Wouldn't you want to serve the tough one, not the wimpy one that just lost all the wars? Yet what they did is they took the gold that they had, set it aside, and hung out with garbage. You look at the prodigal son story, it's the same thing. He traded out his father's wonderful estate to go hang out in an area that left him eating pig slop. That is us. The absurdity that you're hearing about is in our lives. We are trading out our God for something that will eat us alive. You're lonely. And so you say, I want to go find someone to hook up with. And God says, I think that's a bad idea. Well, why? You don't care about me. You're the one that left me lonely, blah, 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 blah. And we begin to blame him for everything. And he said, listen, I'm just telling you, it's against my will. No, I don't want you to go to the bar scene and go hook up with somebody tonight just to feel better. Well, you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. And when two things clash and one wins, you know which one's your God. So you head off and do what you want to do because you think you can dabble in it and you can just hang out and use things of the world without ever getting attached to them. Oops. You go out there, you get hooked up into a bad situation, things get nasty and it starts to eat you alive. At that point, you cry out to God, God, why is this happening to me? How come I have all these issues to deal with? And he says, you walked away from me. That's what happened. So what do you think he said to the Israelites? The Lord replied, let me get this story straight, kids. When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you. And when you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? The answer to that is yes. And what does that mean? It means your enemies aren't your problem. Whatever addiction you're fighting right now is not the problem. Nothing is too big for God to sort out. So you're sitting there going, I'm absolutely addicted to meth. I can't get out of it. That's not the problem. God could get you out of that addiction any moment. So why doesn't he? Well, it may be this scenario. He said, the problem isn't your enemies. The problem's you. But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods that you have chosen. 
Let them save you when you're in trouble. That's pretty harsh. The worst thing that God can ever do is to step out and give you what you want. Right? So he backs off and he says, wait a second, why in the world would I want to free you from your addiction when you're going to trade it for another one? Doesn't that seem a little bit useless? I mean, why do I want to get you away from alcohol when you're just going to run to something else? Why do I want to get you out of one bad relationship so you can run and jump into another one? Why do I want to help you trade out gods? If it's not me, what's the point? Why are we even doing this? So no, if you want to go off and run and play in that arena about you get to pick and choose and try to manipulate your world, go for it. I'm over here. All I'm interested in is you and me being together. I will not help you switch addictions. Ah, pretty tough, huh? Tough love. But the Israelites said to the Lord, and this is our normal response, but we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Okay, now that pretty much means, hey, do whatever you want, but you got to do this now. Come on, man, you got to help me out of here. You got to get me out of this addiction, blah, 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 blah. Now, what's interesting is they're having this conversation with God, yet look at the next, next word. What's the next word in the NIV? Then. Meaning the whole time they're having this conversation, their gods are still in their lives. Why? Because what's the next phrase? Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. What was God waiting for? Them to quit talking and start acting on it. See, here's what we do. God, I'm so messed up in my world. Everything is just crazy. I mean, my mind's wrapped up. I don't even know where to go. I don't know how to do this or to do that. I'm completely locked in this bad relationship. I'm in a mess. There's all this chaos. You've got to save me. Okay, I've given you a lot of tools. What are you doing about it? Nothing. I need you to save me now. You want me to have that person come in and break up with you so that you can be enabled to go do it again. Right. No, that's not how we're going to do it. I've given you a lot of strength. So what decisions are you making in order to recorrect this situation and learn from your mistakes? Nothing. I just want to sit here at home and I want you to save me. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask that you step in there and get involved in the mix and you and I together will walk through this pain and we'll walk out of it. But it's going to be messy and it's going to take a little while. Are you ready to do that? No. I want you to do it all for me. Well, then, my child, you wouldn't learn. So until you're ready to move, I guess I'll see you later. Now, through all this stuff, when they finally got rid of this and they took action and they did responsibility and they were obedient and they moved in the power that they did have already in the Lord, God acted and he's going to save them. But look at the next line. The whole time God's drawing a tough line. The whole time he's doing this tough love thing. The whole time that he is saying, I will not save you any longer. What is his heart inside? What's the next line? And he, meaning God, could bear Israel's misery no longer. Who was hurting the most? God. Through all their sin, through all their chaos, God wept. Through all his tough love, he wept. See, the heart of our God is he doesn't want you to hurt. The only reason he lets you hurt is that you might heal. He is not allowing needless suffering. He is not interested in walking around and letting you get pulverized by the enemy. He loves you too much. But if he must allow consequence to change your heart, 
then so be it. But the whole time, he's crying. When the Ammonites were called to arms, meaning it was wartime, and they camped in Israel's territory of Gilead, the Israelites assembled and they too camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living here. In other words, we're ready to fight, but we don't have a champion. We're ready to fight, but we don't have a leader. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, which means he was a tough guy, had a great reputation, and he probably killed a lot of people. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife, meaning he was married while he was hanging out with prostitutes, and he just happened to get one of them pregnant. I bet you it wasn't the first one the first time. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away, saying, you're not going to get any inheritance in our family because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, which is outside the Israel area, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. This is how this man's life starts. My mom's a prostitute. I don't even know where she is because I went home to live with dad. All my brothers and sisters rejected me and ran me out of the house. I have no family. I have poor parenting. I have all kinds of issues in my life. And now I'm an outlaw leader. That's our deliverer. Now, remember I told you that bad start kind of messed up Abimelech? A bad start didn't mess up this guy totally. He is listed in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith as being a man of God. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get him, Jephthah, from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah said, wait a second, didn't you hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said, good point. Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be the head over all who live here. Jephthah said, well, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all these words before the Lord in Mizpah, meaning he made him promise before God. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king, the enemy king, with a question. What do you have against us that you've attacked our country? It's a fair question. The king replied, When Israel came up out of Egypt, meaning 300 years ago, back in the days of Moses, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. Those are two rivers all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peacefully. How's that going to go? Probably not well. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king and said three things, made three points. First one is this. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came out of Egypt, Israel went through the desert to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab and he refused. So Israel stayed where they were. Next, they traveled through the desert, skirting the lands of Edom and Moab, passing along the eastern side of the country and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon River was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, Let us pass through your country to our own place. 
But Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his men, encamped at Jahaz, and fought with us. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his men into Israel's hands. They defeated him, and Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon River to the Javik and from the desert to the Jordan. Stop. What's his point? We didn't start this fight with you. We tried to be peaceful, and we tried to run around you. You attacked us and drew us into war. Then we beat you down. It's not our fault. You started the battle. So his second point. Now, since the Lord God of Israel has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right do you have to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Shamash, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. So his second point is what? And God gave it to us, so don't mess with him. Apparently, your God's not very strong, so you lose. Number three, are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel has occupied Heshbon, Arawer, the surrounding settlements, and all the town along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? Argument three, we've been here for three generations, for 300 years, and now you're coming and causing a problem? If you had rights to the land, you should have done it a long time ago. You're done. It's ours. I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Okay, pretty good argument. But the king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. All right, that didn't work at all. Okay, but at least it shows that this guy did not want bloodshed. He was trying to organize this out in a calm way. They rejected that, so now someone has to die. Here we go. The spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now, that's an important phrase in the book of Judges. The only reason it's captured in here is not to say that everything he's doing is right. You're going to hear this phrase about Samson, and Samson's an idiot. Okay? And you're going, why does the Holy Spirit keep coming upon moronic people? Well, unfortunately, that's all he has to work with, but... The Spirit of the Lord is said to come upon them so that God will get the glory. Because you know the only reason they won was because of this phrase. So it's an attention giver to God. Saying the only reason you won, you remember, is because the Holy Spirit came upon you. The Holy Spirit came upon Jephthah and he crossed Gilead and Manasseh, picking up troops. Passed through Mizpah of Gilead and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Here's where everything goes wrong. He's tense. He's in a situation going into war. He has to defeat a mighty nation and he's panicked. He's tense. He wants to make sure he's going to win. Didn't the Holy Spirit already come upon him? Is he going to win? Yeah, but he makes a vow. Now understand, he's half Jew, half pagan. In the pagan world, whenever you go into a fight, you try to manipulate your God into doing what you wanted. You promise him stuff and say, if you give me this, I'll give you this. Well, he starts trying to do that with our God. That's not how God works. God already was going to let him win. But he comes in out of his panicky, looking at his circumstance, not checking with God, not slowing down, making a rash decision, and makes a vow to try to manipulate God to doing what he wants. How do you think that went for him? Yeah, probably not well. If you give the Ammonites into my hands... Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. I'm sorry, what did you say? Whatever comes out of your house, 
Wouldn't you say that's probably a living thing? He just promised whatever comes out of his house, he will slaughter and burn it for the Lord. Okay, that's stupid. A couple reasons why. What if it's a dog that runs out? You're not allowed to offer a dog. It's an unclean animal. God doesn't want that. So what are you doing? He's trying to manipulate God. No, I promise you. I swear I'll give you that. Have you guys ever made bets with God? If you get, in, get me out of this situation, I will. What dumb thing did you say? Because <laughs> I know you regret it now. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. Imagine that. He devastated 20 towns from Arawer to the vicinity of Mineth as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. By the way, they had peace from Ammon for 50 years. Jephthah, this should be the end of his story right here. The end of his story should be, what a great conqueror, isn't he an awesome guy? But all we remember is what happens next. Then Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, and who should come out to meet him? But his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines. She was an only child, except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, oh, my daughter, you've made me miserable and wretched. Really? Because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. What is he saying? Scholars are divided on this, and so I put it in your digging deeper notes on the back of your page that you can study later. However, you have two options. Either he dedicated her into the temple service, and she had to never be married her whole life and live in the temple, and that was not her calling, meaning she could never be a mom or a wife, which is what she cherished most. Either her dad screwed her life up that way, or else he slit her throat, put her on a thing, and burned her. Those are your two choices. Either way, do we not have a horrible situation? How did she respond? I would suggest she's about 14 years old because she was unmarried at this time. How did she respond? My father, she replied, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you have promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. Who is this girl? This is outstanding. Do you understand what she just said? No problem, Dad. Either kill me or completely screw up my whole life. I know you owe it to God. Do you understand what kind of girl is being killed here? Do you understand the amazing gold that this young lady is? The apple of his eye? He did not have to lose her. It was his stupid choices and his rash vow that led to her demise. He never had to do this. God was already going to be on his side. But grant me this one request, Father, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. And she and the girls went into the hills and wept because they would never marry. And after two months, she returned to her father and he did to her just as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Bad decision? Yeah. But he's not done. There's other people making bad decisions. The men of Ephraim, remember the guys that yelled at Gideon, how dare you not call us to fight? And they tried to fight with him and he calmed them down. Here they come again. The men of Ephraim called out their forces crossing over to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Wise? Oh, you would imagine he could say, I just killed my daughter. I'm in no mood to hear from you. 
and you're going to come off and go unhinged on me because I didn't allow you to fight with me? Are you kidding me? You know what? I'm sick of you. Now, Gideon did this very calm reply, not Jephthah. He was like, you know what? You have no right to get in my face. We're going to go to battle. Jephthah said, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites. And although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw you wouldn't help, I took my life in my own hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now, why have you come to fight me? Jephthah called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. These are Israelites. Israelite fighting Israelites. Civil war. There's nothing more ridiculous than civil war bloodshed. We lost so many men in our civil war and we weren't even fighting an outside enemy. What are we talking about? And he fought them because they insulted him. The Ephraimites said, you Gileadites are renegades from our tribe. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, meaning he was in disguise, the men of Gilead said, are you an Ephraimite? He said, no, which is a good answer because you're going to get killed. They said, all right, say Shibboleth. He's like, what? Say Shibboleth. No. Well, then I guess you're not going to cross the river, are you? Say Shibboleth. Sibboleth. Nope. Wrong answer. Bam. Killed him right there. Look at that. If he replied no, they said, say Shibboleth. And if he said Sibboleth, because he couldn't pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. And 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. One bad decision led to the death of a prized daughter. The other bad rash decision led to what? 42,000 men dying on one side alone. What do you think God's point is? Be slow to speak. Right? Slow to become angry. Quick to listen. Where's the waiting on the Lord? And it finishes up with mediocrity. He could have been a great man. Jephthah led Israel six years. That's it. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. And after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem led Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters, gave his daughters away in marriage to those outside his clan. And for sons, he brought in 30 young women as wives from outside his clan. Ibzan led Israel seven years. When Ibzan died, he was buried in Bethlehem. And after him, Elon the Zebulonite led Israel ten years. Then Elon died and was buried in Ahilon in the land of Zebulun. And after him, Abdon, son of Hillel from Pirathon, led Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons. He rode on seventy donkeys. He led Israel eight years. Then Abdon, son of Hillel, died and was buried at Pirathon in Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. You know what I see in that last portion? First of all, a bunch of kings that I don't care about. But here's what I see. Every one of them had huge, full families and got to lead Israel, and Jephthah had none. His life could have been characterized with glory. The Holy Spirit came upon you. You devastated the Ammonite nation. You're intense. Look at what you did for God. How amazing. I mean, you crossed over with your small army. You defeated massive odds. You could have been the man. You could have been God's man. You could have done things right. But just because you wouldn't slow down, just because you wouldn't trust God. Just because you had to manipulate your situation. You're nobody. You lost it all. Because you wouldn't have patience. And you wouldn't slow to listen to God's words. 
Here's my point today. And Jeremy, if you can bring the team up and close us out. Here's what I want to say to you. You're going to have a lot of chaos rock your world. You're going to have things come in. You're going to get fired from your job. You're going to have your marriage rocked. Your kids are going to fall into disrepair where you're just, oh my gosh, what's happening to you kids? You're going to have stuff crash into you. You're going to have an internal conflict. You're going to have days that absolutely dominate your mind and make you feel like you're going to go mad. Those are not times to make life decisions. Those are not times to be hasty in promising God stuff. Those are times to hang on to the rock. When everything's crazy, you've got to hang on to the one immovable thing. Because I'll tell you this, it is our nature as humans that when we hurt really bad and we're in chaos, we become self-destructive. And we end up making our wounds far larger than they ever would have been. And it's almost as if the enemy comes in and cuts us once. But by the time the dust clears, we've lacerated ourselves all over. Why should we help the enemy demolish us? When everything goes and the fire erupts, slow down, seek the Lord, and wait. Don't jump the gun. There may be a reason why you're here today. You may be facing decisions right now. Consult the Lord. Slow down. Get wisdom. Get counsel. And stop running ahead of the shepherd. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for a reminder, Lord, that You're willing to weep with us. That You're willing to run with us. That we don't have to have this drama. That life doesn't have to be this messed up. That, Lord, if we do it Your way, it minimizes the chaos. And remind us, Lord, that Your way is the only way that works. And so, Father, I just ask that You would calm down our spirit and allow the perfect peace of Isaiah that guards our hearts and minds come over us. And, Lord, that we would be settled in our spirit and we as believers, as children of God, would be able to operate from a place of safety, security, and calmness. In your name we pray. Amen.